audience gets caught up on those things as well. Oh, here we go. From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome. We're here at uh, Wealth DNA Radio Show. Honored that you're joining us. Today we're broadcasting live from the uh, Heart Health Expo at the Sun Dome in Sun City, Arizona. So you may hear a little bit of background noise initially. Uh, that should fade away because we're uh, actually off in a uh, separate location to avoid that. Uh, wherever you are while you're listening to the live show or you're listening to the archive of the show, I'm sure you'll be glad you joined us. Our topic today is capital via crowdfunding. You may recall we talked about crowdfunding in January of 2013, so if you missed that show, you might want to go back to our archive. This is a fairly recent topic that most entrepreneurs and uh, investors just started to hear about early in 2012, but I can assure you it is not a topic that only applies to companies and investors in the U.S. Regardless of where you live, crowdfunding is very likely to affect you in the future. And Pete, I don't know if you're aware, but we're definitely picking up some of the background noise still, so I don't know if you can mute that further, um, but we're definitely picking it up. Let's put the topic into perspective and talk about the various types of financial investments and security registration. I'll use the U.S. terminology, and I know the same concepts apply virtually anywhere in the world that has a publicly traded securities market. The vast majority of financial investments, especially those that the, most people are familiar with, like equities, bonds, REITs, MLPs, are registered securities. Have you ever thought about why there's a requirement to register those securities? All of those financial instruments are merely pieces of paper or even electronic records that claim to represent an asset or a debt. So it would be very easy for a scam artist to uh, sell you a similar piece of paper that's actually fake. As the buyers of the securities, investors need some proof that they're legitimate, and that's what the SEC registration is providing. On the other hand, that SEC registration does not assure us that the underlying asset or debt is worth the price we paid. The future value depends totally on the actual products or services and the management team's ability to create value. Similarly, the people who sell you those registered securities are also licensed or registered with the SEC to provide some assurances that they're dealing with registered securities. All of these things give us some level of comfort, but we have to remember that Bernie Madoff, who perpetuated one of the largest Ponzi schemes in history, not only was registered with the SEC, his investments were registered, and he used, uh, and he actually ran one of the major U.S. stock exchanges in the past. Now, the second category is what we commonly call unregistered securities, and as the investor we have less assurance of legitimacy. But in many cases, the investors have far more access to the company or the management team. What are examples of these unregistered securities? Well, the shares in most non-publicly traded companies. When we covered angel and venture capital last year, we didn't emphasize this particular point. 
Those are relatively small companies where the cost of SEC re- registration would be prohibitive. Or, excuse me, prohibitive. But the owners of those shares, very often the management team, their families, friends, and these angel and venture capital providers. Most are either sophisticated or accredited investors, or they're closely linked to the management team, which gives them a level of comfort or assurance. Of course, some of the people who call you during the day pitching a small uh, cap stock or oil well investment might also not be registered and the stock investment they're touting may be unregistered. Doing your due diligence prior to investing is critical. But there are other investments we often make that aren't registered but not considered unregistered securities. What are they? Well, this third category includes hard assets you would buy, such as gold, silver, bear bonds, collectibles, real estate, and many others. None of those require SEC registration, and they're technically not even securities. So does that make them riskier than stocks or bonds? No. To the contrary, the reason that they don't require registration is that you actually own or hold them in a tangible form. You see, there's no doubt they're legitimate when you can touch and feel them. Now, that doesn't mean you wouldn't do some due diligence or keep an audit trail of your purchase. Let's say you bought gold. You're going to check out the company selling the gold to make sure you're not uh, buying uh, tungsten-coated with gold and keep the um, receipts to prove that you actually bought it rather than stole it. Now, if you're buying real estate, you'll have the property title check to make sure the person selling you that property has the right to sell it. And there are no encumbrances or liens that you'll be inheriting. In the case of real estate, you probably also pay for a title insurance policy to protect against some error made in transaction 10, 50, or 100 years ago. Now, there's a fourth category I don't want to leave out, one that few people know about, namely exempt from securities regulations. Yes, exempt. The best examples we've talked about several times in the show are mortgage notes, whether originated by a bank or a private lender. In this case, you hold a piece of paper documenting the loan to the property owner. And more importantly, there's a record in the county recorder's office proving you are the lender of record. So even if you lose that piece of paper, you're covered. Again, does this lack of SEC registration make mortgage notes riskier than registered securities? No. To the contrary, they're secured by a physical property, not merely a piece of paper or electronic record. Even if um, there was a um, title's policy that was purchased, a lender's uh, title policy was purchased at the time of origination, you as the note holder are protected by that policy. Contrast that to when a company goes into default, your stocks and even your bonds will be worthless. Now, what does this all have to do with crowdfunding? Well, when we talk to our guest very shortly, it should be obvious. Today is February 10th. 2014. It's 9.07 a.m. in Arizona, 8.07 a.m. on the West Coast, and 17.07 in continental Europe. It's the only day ever like it. We'll do everything possible to make a great one. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. The show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. I certainly hope you can join us each time we air. But if you miss a show like the earlier one in crowdfunding, you can find it on the archives. Just go to WealthDNA.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archive. We welcome your questions and uh, comments during the show generally, but it turns out there is a technical problem with the chat window, and very clearly with the uh, noise in the background uh, at the um, Health Expo, uh, I'm not going to recommend we do that today. We've got a lot to ask uh, our guest today, so uh, the 
let me just share with you what the markets did. The U.S. equity markets, which uh, left a chart last week that looked like the Olympic ski jumping event, or maybe the first dip on a roller coaster ride, they're off to a negative start. Asia was up dramatically except the Hang Seng. Europe, which uh, currently is mostly up, and Brazil and Mexico down. Now, we don't have an index tracking crowdfunding yet, so I can't give you an update. Our special guest today is Alon Gorin, the CEO and co-founder of Invested In, a technology company that specializes in what they refer to as white-label crowdfunding platforms. We'll find out more about that. The company currently manages an estimated $32 million in crowdfunding deals, and in 2013 received the Los Angeles Venture Association's award for the best marketplace platform for funding. Very impressive. And they don't just help small businesses. They actually helped, uh, invested in, specifically helped launch platforms for leading brands like Coca-Cola and the Alberta Bank in Canada. Now, Alon is a thought leader on social enterprise and crowdfunding. He's spoken at several crowdfunding forums. He's been featured in the Washington Post, Forbes, Mashable, and The Street, just to name a few. And today he's stepping up to the next level as our guest on the Wealth TNA Radio Show. Let's give a warm radio welcome to Alon Gorn. Welcome, Alon, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. And I gave a brief overview of your background and your company. How do you introduce yourself at a cocktail party? Um, <laughs> you know, we basically I, I explain to people that we power uh, crowdfunding. We're tons of uh, financial folks and business folks are getting into it, whether they're entrepreneurs or big corporations mm-hmm. like you were saying before. Um, not many of those folks are poised to be the back end for it. Not many of them are techies. Um, and we, my partner and I are clearly techies. And we came into this because, uh, because we thought you know, the fundraising world online was broken and we wanted to fix it. But we came at it completely from a technical standpoint because you know, our backgrounds are in technology. Uh, my partner and I met each other working at MySpace back in the day. Um, we were actually part of a team that built the first internet karaoke company. Um, and uh, you know, at, from there, uh, my partner worked at a few different companies, and I worked at IMDb, which is owned by Amazon. So you know, our mm-hmm. thing really is uh, being the technology provider behind the folks that want to get into this stuff. Um, okay. Very clearly at the beginning of starting our business, we realized that our biggest asset is, uh, is our you know, knowledge of technology. Okay. So if we had a little more time, we'd have you sing a few bars for us from the uh, karaoke days. Uh, now, we talked about crowdfunding on the show. No, we don't want that? Okay, me neither. Uh, we talked about crowdfunding on the show about a year ago. I'd like to refresh our listeners' memory. This concept came about with the drafting and signing of that Jobs Act back in 2012. Mm-hmm. What does the Jobs Act cover? Yeah, you know, Jobs Act is, is really – so Jobs – Stood for uh, or stands for Jumpstarting Our Business Startups Act. Um, it's really a bunch of uh, rules and laws, or at least mandates, that um, are there to jumpstart small business. And you know, the idea why they call it Jobs Act is because you know small businesses account for most of the jobs created in this country. Um, I think it was just a really, really, really smart way of getting politicians on both sides of uh, of, of the aisle to uh, agree on something because nobody wants to be the politician who voted down the Jobs Act. 
Okay, fair point. Now, what are some of the key provisions regarding crowdfunding in the JOBS Act? So, you know, with crowdfunding, there's a few different um, a few different provisions. There's there's you know changing the rules and laws of existing fundraising um, you know structures. So, like Title II, which just uh, in September became law, was there to basically allow companies now to publicly solicit what they're already doing. So if a company was raising money before, it would have been illegal for them to go onto Facebook and say, hey, I'm raising money for my startup. seems counterintuitive in this country because most startups raise money from their friends and family, but legally that wasn't allowed because it was considered an IPO, an initial public offering. Um, and so now you can legally do that. The only thing you have to do is file a little bit of paperwork, and since we're still in a limbo period, you don't even really have to do that. All you'll have to do once you're done is, uh, you know, um, file a little bit of extra paperwork, which is almost nothing, and then just verify that each person that does end up investing in your company is an accredited investor. So you still can only advertise the folks who uh, – well, you can advertise to everyone, but the only people who can actually invest in your company are still only accredited investors, which means you have a, you're a high net worth individual. Um, the next sort of uh, important part of crowdfunding is Title III, which is what we really think of crowdfunding. Um, it's basically opening it up to the masses to fund your businesses, um, letting anybody, not just high net worth individuals, invest in any company that goes through crowdfunding. There's a bunch of rules and laws, and the SEC is trying to finalize the rules for it, but it looks like you know they'll have to be raised on specific portals online, um, They'll have to disclose certain information. Unfortunately, they're going to put the startups through a lot of hoops where they have to, you know, have audited financials and things like that. And then there'll be, you know, obvious things like background checks and stuff that'll have to be done if you'd like to raise money that way. Okay. Now, before we forget, let's get your contact information out so listeners want to uh, talk to you or to uh, uh, invest it in about helping them out. Uh, why don't you give us that website and maybe your email address as well? Sure. Um, go to uh, investedin.com to check out anything about what we're doing. Um, you go to, uh, or you can send an email to Alon at InvestedIn. Um, you can uh, also find InvestedIn on Twitter uh, at InvestedIn or me directly at Alonimus. <laughs> okay. And uh, that allows some of our multitaskers to check a little bit about the company during the show. Now, as I recall, that Jobs Act it was actually signed, like I said, early in 2012. Uh, but most of the laws that are passed in the U.S. and most countries don't really become effective until some of those rules are written. Uh, were there some aspects of crowdfunding that entrepreneurs could take advantage of right away, right after the law was signed? Um, not not exactly right away. The thing you could really take advantage of right away is is the fact that people were becoming aware of all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, what I think it depends on what you want to do. So, if you were an entrepreneur who wanted to actually get into the business of crowdfunding, there's okay. tons and tons of tons of opportunities. So, for example, uh, if you wanted to create a crowdfunding site where on your radio show every uh, couple weeks you actually um, introduced a few of the companies that were crowdfunding on your site, then maybe you'd get ahead of it right now, contact somebody like us, and have them help you build that, that technology or that, that portal for you. Mm -hmm. um, if you were looking at the rules and laws and you went, wow, 
uh, verifying an accredited investor is going to be a pain in the butt. Let's, uh, let's figure out how to do that better um, than anybody else. Uh, then, then you could actually start a business around it. And actually, um, you know, that I think all of, every time there's something frustrating that comes out in the potential rules and laws that the SEC puts out, um, I think uh, I forgot who, who originally said it to me, so I feel bad uh, uh, saying it, but, but somebody once pointed out to me that every single one of those frustrations is a potential for a new business. Um, you know, Good point. For, for example, when people, when eBay and Amazon started uh, doing stuff for people that, you know, it was, to me it was funny because I was such a techie nerd and I, I was mm-hmm. so into it, but, uh, but the most people, it, it, they really believe. Nobody would be crazy enough to put their credit card online. Nobody would be crazy enough to buy something on the Internet. And right. people did get scammed at the beginning, but for the most part, it went off without a hitch. And companies like PayPal, uh, came into existence and became, you know, billion-dollar companies out of the necessity to verify, you know, that somebody is uh, the real person using the credit card online. Um, okay. No, I, I would agree with you. I mean, basically, yeah. it's one of the, the sayings I remember from my corporate days. Uh, there are no problems. They're all opportunities. So every time we yeah. see one of those obstacles, that just means there's another business opportunity that somebody else hasn't jumped into yet. Absolutely. Well said. So, yeah, so... so there's, so that that when it first came out was really the the big thing. There were opportunities in the business of it, and maybe looking at existing financial businesses and going, how are we going to change along with the times and and get ahead of it. Um, I think now because Title II is is legal, um, is when the most exciting stuff has, is going on. Um, what what's going to happen now is if you are raising money for your business or raising money for a fund or even if you're syndicating real estate deal, um, you weren't mm-hmm. legally allowed to tell anybody about it unless you knew for sure that they were an accredited investor and you had a prior existing relationship. Now you literally could go into the New York Times and say, I'm buying this building. It's going to cost me $50 million to buy it and renovate it and flip it. Uh, who's in? Mm-hmm. And you literally can put a contact information in there and ask people to invest in you. Um, that that was you know unheard of. Uh, just just a few months ago. Um, and so, you know, I have, we're working on a product called Invested in Alpha. Um, it's going to be at investedinalpha.com. And it's going to be our technology basically for hedge funds and real estate funds and VC funds to help them mm-hmm. streamline the process of raising money. And I've had VCs already, big venture capital firms, who have gone on to CNBC and live on TV has told people about their returns for the last few funds they did and tell people we're raising money right now for our next fund. Come to our website and check it out. It's, wow. um, it's you know, something that you know, you, you know, being in broadcasting, that nobody could do that before. I couldn't go onto your, uh, onto your show and tell people to invest in my company. Uh, Correct. It would have been, you know, been super illegal. Exactly. Now, when we had Daniel, Daniel Hirsch of IPO Village on January 2013, just over a year ago, virtually none of the rules were written. It sounds like the key change that took place during 2013, and you mentioned September, is this Title II, where you now can advertise. You still can only get funding from accredited investors. Are there any other changes that took, pl- took place in 2013? Um, that, that's mostly it. I mean, that, that's the, the, the biggest change that affects people. Um, mm-hmm. They did put forth the rules and laws uh, for Title III, 
but they don't go into effect until after the comment periods are done, and there could be another comment period. And obviously, if you look at how long it's taken up until this point, uh, who knows exactly when it will happen? There's a lot of folks who are really, uh, who are really, you know, adamant about it happening over the next few months. Um, and and to be clear, Title III is when anybody will be able to raise money online from non-accredited investors. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that that will probably happen. I hope by the end of the year. But I I always my advice to folks is these are amazing opportunities and these could be uh, huge for all of us. Um, but if you're building a business today, build your business as to what's legal today. Right. Um, and if those things come through in a way that can help, then then hopefully it throws gasoline on the fire. Um, and if they come through and it doesn't make sense for you or the rules and laws are too complicated or, you know, it's too expensive, then you have a, a good business that you've built on what's legal today. Um, okay. that's, that's really, you know, my, my advice, and that's what we've always done with our business is we've focused on what's allowed today and, uh, you know, and if things come through in a way that's, that's positive, then, then we'll win. Um, if, uh, if not, we're still doing really well. <laughs> Yep. Let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Now, if you miss some of the prior shows or you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on wealthdna.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows or... Um, Keep us, keep, have us keep you posted about upcoming shows, just send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. Now, reminder, during the radio show, we welcome our listeners to ask questions generally. Today is an exception. We have problems with the chat window. There's a technology problem uh, that we have not been able to resolve. Our topic today is capital via crowdfunding, which we're discussing with Alan Gorin, the CEO and co-founder of Invested In, who specializes in crowdfunding platforms. Alan, I recall some companies did start selling equity or raising some debt financing using crowdfunding prior to that September of 2013. Were they doing that illegally? Well, they were probably doing it on certain websites. So. Uh, AngelList is a really good example. So our company actually raised around and we utilized AngelList before. And those websites, um, if they were doing it legally, um, they had a closed network of uh, accredited investors. And so when you were putting up a deal on those sites, um, it wasn't being shared publicly. Uh, you couldn't go onto LinkedIn or Twitter and say, hey, my company's raising money on AngelList right now. But you could say, come check out my company profile on AngelList. And if you came to the site, signed up, and actually filled out the forms and were an accredited investor, then if the company wanted to make their deal available to all accredited investors, they could. Um, so, so that was their way sort of around it. And that's actually how some sites still work um, because some people don't want to publicly solicit because of the extra mm-hmm. kind of baggage that goes along with it or they want to keep their deal a little more exclusive. So. Basically, the way I I explain it is that it might not be true crowdfunding where you're letting the masses get involved, but you are using crowdfunding technology to streamline something that was uh, tough to do offline. Okay. Now, a lot of that stuff, those platforms cropped up very, very quickly. Uh, Can I safely assume that actually this whole crowdfunding concept started elsewhere and that U.S. kind of jumped into it in 2012? 
Sure. I mean, the, the concept behind it all has been around for a long time. So, you know, Kickstarter and Indiegogo and sites like that, when you're talking about the, the non-securities uh, crowdfunding, when you're just talking about the rewards and donation type of stuff, mm-hmm. there's been companies trying to attack that space for years and years before they became, uh, before those companies became popular. It just, there was some kind of nexus, some kind of point where the social side of, uh, of the internet and online fundraising finally got to a point where people were comfortable doing stuff like this online. And the, the tools that were available to connect with everybody's network uh, became, got to a point where it made sense. So, like, for example, we were doing Invested In a couple of years before uh, Kickstarter even existed, before the word crowdfunding hmm. existed. We just called it social fundraising. When we first started, we envisioned doing the type of crowdfunding of today, but we being techies, actually didn't even know that most of the stuff we wanted to really do was illegal. Uh, So we we built it, and then before we could even launch it, we we had learned the rules of laws and part of our due diligence, so we focused on the nonprofit space, on trading things. So when we first launched, we did raise money. We raised about $10,000 for our business, but we weren't allowed to give equity to people who contributed. So what we did was Mm -hmm. we basically said, this is the type of business we want to launch. This is our product. Um, and uh, we traded, you know, like T-shirts and links to our site, and we joked around that if you go to a tech conference, everybody's a co-founder um, for some business. Uh, there you go. So we, we gave everybody who, who contributed $25 or more to our campaign, we gave them a T-shirt with our logo on it, and it said co-founder underneath. Um, and so there's, you know, a few hundred people running around with co-founder T-shirts now. Um, okay. Hmm. But, uh, Interesting. But that, that, that's what's that's what was legal, and that's really what's legal today if you want to go through the masses. Um, but, you know, um, that, that's really, you know, um, you know, I think I, I strayed away from the question, but that was, that was what has, has sort of always been legal, and now we're taking it towards security. Okay. Now, when I share the description of Invested In, it mentions you're a, a technical uh, technology company, excuse me, specializing in white label uh, crowdfunding platforms. What does that phrase "white label" mean? Is it kind of the good housekeeping seal of approval in crowdfunding? <laughs> no. So white white label is actually a term for, and and we we're actually um, not exactly white label. It's it's a good an easy term to use. But white label okay. solutions online are usually something where Somebody can, uh, if you want to launch a website in some kind of business like crowdfunding, I could hand mm-hmm. you something, uh, a basically software that's already completed, and you just put your logo in the corner and run with it. And generally, that's how white label solutions work online. So, like, there's lots of white label solutions for like e-commerce. If you have a mm-hmm. business uh, that sells T-shirts um, in in your town and you want to bring it online, there's a million white label solutions you could use to. Uh, to basically run your business online. So we do uh, something similar for the people wanting to launch their own versions of the Kickstarters and Indiegogo, where you can go mm-hmm. right on our website and launch your site in minutes. Um, but if you wanted to launch, let's say, a security-based crowdfunding site, you would come to me and say, hey, I want to launch that site we talked about earlier where uh, people who listen into our show can invest in the companies that are on our show. And I would sit with you and we would come up with a specific spec sheet of what you need the site to look like, how you would need it to run, what type of special features you guys would need, and how your lawyers uh, tell us 
we should actually facilitate the transactions on the site. Because still, because the rules and laws aren't finalized, every lawyer will give you 10 different answers as to what's legal. Um, and so we would sit down, and then what we would do, because our basically the engine for your site is 90% of the way built with the technology we have, then we mm-hmm. customize that last 10% and launch for you your own crowdfunding site. Um, that, okay. That's really what we do. So it's sort of a, a cross between what techies call a software as a service business and mm-hmm. a custom software development shop. So we customize it, but once you're launched, it's very much just a monthly service fee and the hosting and maintenance and, and security updates and things like that. Okay. Now, another uh, bit of terminology came up with this term title. And you specifically mentioned Title II, Title III, and, and in, in the way it's written, it's actually Roman numerals. What does that term refer to? Are those uh, chapters or sections of the Jobs Act or of the rules being written? Yeah, those are the sections of the Jobs Act. There's, there's all the different titles within it that, that pertain to crowdfunding or, or the, different, um, the different rules and laws within the Jobs Act. There's basically government mandates for something that now is technically legal, but it's all pending on the SEC's uh, rules and laws and approvals. Okay. Was there also a Title I? You, you never talked about Title I. Was there a Title uh, I in there as well? There was. I'm trying to remember exactly. Um, uh, it was, um, I think it had to do with, um, uh, shoot, now I'm trying to remember. Was it a nonprofit um, potentially that was allowed? No, that, that stuff was, was already there. Um, Title One, I think, was an exemption. If I remember, it was ah. that broker-dealer exemption or part of an IPO kind of thing. Oh, gotcha. It was, uh, it was not really totally related to crowdfunding, so I wasn't too into it. But um, mm-hmm. it, it was, there was a, uh, a bit of, of um, you know, something broker-dealer regulation. And, and, and I apologize because I'm coming at this as, uh, from the angle of a techie that's been powering this stuff. And, I purposely try to stay away from diving too deep into those. Sure, no, I understand. No, that's fair. Fair enough. No, not a problem at all. Now, tell us a little bit more about this title too. What type of entrepreneur and what type of investor? Now, the investor you mentioned has to be accredited, accredited to be interested in title too. How about uh, entrepreneurs? Uh, what are the types of companies that want to or are already taking advantage of this title two financing? So I think most of the entrepreneurs taking advantage of it are folks that are in the, the tech startup world were sort of the first to embrace mm-hmm. it because they were already going after those types of investors to invest in them. And what's happening next is there's certain sites, I think, um, I think Fundable might be one of them, um, uh, but there's certain sites that are focusing on specific markets so that they can basically help investors in those specific markets um, access the deals. So, like uh, on one of the sites, um, they're going after consumer goods. So, some a company that's raising money because they have gotten their consumer goods in a few stores, and now they want to expand and go, you know, nationwide or worldwide. They need to raise a few million dollars, but they don't have a network themselves of accredited investors. So mm-hmm. normally they would they would do their sort of uh, they would go to networking events they'd go to angel networks and things like that um, they'd go to venture capitalists directly and now they can go online and there's whole networks of those types of investors online on sites like like you know Fundable or uh, AngelList or CircleUp um, and 
they're, they're basically focusing on that. So it's a lot of startups that are sort of at the next phase. They're beyond the very small seed stage, but even some seed stage companies you'll see on AngelList are publicly soliciting and using Title II. Um, they're you know, utilizing the tools that, that those companies are, are making available for them. It's okay. mostly folks raising. I would say I would say the average is five hundred to five hundred thousand to a million dollars. Okay, well, those are still still significant sums. Oh uh, yeah, those, in- those are the startups. Yeah, those are the startups. And then, like I was mentioning before, the funds. There's funds that I know of raising between forty and a hundred million dollars taking advantage of Title II because now they can, like I said, go on go on the live news on CNBC and tell people they're raising money. Hmm. Okay. All right. That is. Uh, so it is definitely starting to really happen since they uh, launched this title to uh, legally. Oh, absolutely. Uh, how about from an investor's perspective? What are some of the pitfalls with uh, Title II and and eventually, of course, Title III? But let's focus on Title II. What are some of the pitfalls that that investor needs to be aware of? You know, I think that it's. I think that it's mostly uh, a. I think it's a mostly win-win situation. There's certain little things like the verification of an accredited investor mm-hmm. um, is uh, must be done in certain ways. So there's a little kind of there's pain points there where if somebody wants to be very very strict, their their websites might ask you for financials and things like that, where an accredited investor might not want to give a startup that's raising money sure. their financial information, but. Under the rules and laws, there's a section there that says that um, if you want to invest in my company, all I really need is a piece of paper that your lawyer or your accountant basically verifies on your behalf that you're an accredited investor. And they're Mm -hmm. basically saying, you know, uh, Alon Gorin is an accredited investor. I'm this accountant. I certify it. And so so now that that is there, um, there's various ways to e-sign it and kind of get around it. So from from that side, it's it's not bad. And then I think from an investor's perspective, imagine if you're an investor sitting in, uh, well, you're sitting in Arizona, and you want to invest mm-hmm. in Los Angeles-based tech companies because it's blowing up right now. Right. Um, you would never normally have access to those deals unless you were able to go online or find out about them in some way. And now you're able to do that. Now you can go on AngelList or you can follow your favorite companies on Twitter and actually find out when they're raising money and go on to AngelList and, and make a bet as small as $1,000 on that company. Now, you know, uh, chances are, you know, companies at this stage are very, very risky investments, but there's also with, with risk comes reward. And if one out of 10 companies you invest in becomes huge, then you're going to get a, a 30x return on that one investment, and it'll make up for all the rest and more. Um, and so it's, it's an opportunity for investors they get out of their small sort of um, bubbles within their um, uh, within their uh, within their community. But no mm-hmm. longer do you have to hope that the good deal comes to your angel group and submits and goes through and hops through the hoops and gets gets the pitch to you guys. You can actually find all the good deals. And there's an argument, at least in in the tech scene, at least that the best deals don't go to the angel groups because they get up before they even get there, um, and only the deals that aren't quite as good end up going to those angel groups. Now, if you're proactive, you can go online, and it doesn't—you don't need to be insanely well connected to figure out which companies are raising money and to get in on those deals. So it's a win-win opportunity for folks who want to invest. 
Okay, well said. Now, how about if I look from an entrepreneur's perspective? Are there some pitfalls or things that the entrepreneur needs to look out? Or am I saying entrepreneur? It could be a business, it could be even a significant business. Sure. But what are some of the pitfalls that they would look out for, especially under this Title II? Uh, can they run into some problems? Sure. I mean, uh, the, the, the things you've got to worry about is verifying that folks are accredited investors. And, you know, there's no... Uh, there's currently no precedence of anybody getting in trouble for it yet or anybody getting that sort of thumbs up from the SEC either with a no action letter. So you have to make sure you really follow the rules and laws and verifying that the people that invest in your company are an accredited investor. But beyond that, it's, it's the same type of stuff you have to worry about before this. So um, I, I would say the, the biggest pitfall would be now that you can collect money quicker from more people, you might be willing to take much smaller investments in your company, but you got to be careful who becomes an investor in your company because they have certain rights uh, as an investor in your company. And, you know, it is very easy to have uh, five investors you trust invest in your company, but now imagine if you have 50 investors in your company that invested that same amount of money, each one of those guys has the right to sue you if you misrepresent yourself. You got to be mm-hmm. very careful who you let on board um, through through Title II, but it, it's the same thing you had to worry about before. Um, it's just now because of technology, there's the possibility of having more of those shareholders, and so you just got to be careful who who you basically let on your team. Okay. Now, you had even mentioned, I, I was probably most familiar with Kickstarter and, and Diego. It sounds like they were really focused on kind of the uh, uh, promotional gadgets and, you know, fundraising that was really more of a, a, a donation. Uh, are they now jumping into the Title II? And then, you know, are some of the other sites specializing by type of market so that they, uh, you know, get better at it? Uh, for, for example, trying to go after financial companies or tech companies or bio companies, that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, how does, that, how does that look? Are they all starting to compete with each other, or are they try to specialize more? Absolutely. So they're, they're, most of them, so uh, the first question, are they getting into Title II? Um, mm-hmm. Most of those massively popular um, rewards-based crowdfunding sites, so they're basically really cool e-commerce sites, if you right. just step back. Um, those guys, for the most part, are not getting into Title II. Some of them want to get into Title III or will potentially get into mm-hmm. Title III, but Kickstarter has, has said publicly multiple times they're not interested in that kind of crowdfunding. Um, hmm. But so, so a lot of the other ones are. Um, and so people will get into that. Um, when it comes to the, the specialization, absolutely. So we power... That's basically our bread and butter comes from the folks who want to specialize either in a specific market or Mm -hmm. a specific geographical location or sometimes both. Um, So, like, for example, uh, the site we power, Alberta Booster, is basically a small business fundraising site for businesses in Alberta, Canada. Um, And because it's run by one of the community-owned banks of Alberta, Canada, the largest one, they uh, they subsidize the whole site. So it's free for the companies to go on there. Um, And so it makes perfect sense because they're building a community within their their province that is interested in investing in businesses in their province. And there's people, uh, we just launched a site called Fundafeast, which is a really great crowdfunding site for the uh, for the food and hospitality industry. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, uh, there's a bunch of different ones that are doing things similar to that because they realize that if they can attack specific markets, all of these markets are huge on their own, and they're, they're going after them. And, you know, if they're successful, they can go the way of uh, Amazon, where they start with books, but move on to movies and then move on to, you know, consumer uh, goods and, until they own the market. Um, and so I, I think that's the right approach because competing sort of being the everything for everyone is very tough to market yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean that the number of platforms and websites doing crowdfunding is going to continue to grow where we're going to have uh, you know, these little breakaway groups and, and, and then trying to find what investment opportunities are out there is going to get more and more challenging? Or you know, what do you see happening there? Because uh, you know, I, if there's 10 sites, I probably could uh, you know, follow them. But if there's uh, 3,000 sites, I probably couldn't. You know, what do you see happening there? <laughs> There's going to be those 3,000 sites at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, but they will quickly, quickly uh, uh, flesh out into those ones that, like we said, for specific. So they'll be the, the medical device crowdfunding company and the consumer goods crowdfunding company and the food crowdfunding company and the, and the tech startup crowdfunding company. And those, there will be a couple probably in each one of those markets, and people will be comfortable with with their own version of it. Because if you look at most angel groups, there's uh, an angel group that might have 200 people in it. But there's right. 10 guys that really focus on uh, biotech. And there's 10 guys that really love uh, tech companies. And there's 10 guys that really love uh, franchise opportunities. Um, and usually what happens is those few guys that really focus on the thing they love might bring in some of the other guys after they invest in a deal. They might be the lead and bring in a few others. I think that's really what's going to happen with crowdfunding as well. And if you're really interested in biotech, now you'll have a company, a website full of biotech opportunities. Um, if you're really interested in, in tech startups, you'll have a website full of tech startup opportunities to invest in. And, you know, you'll probably bring your network in on the investments that you make if you think they're good deals. Um, but but generally, that, that's what will happen. And then I think there will always be there will be the potential for somebody to become the Amazon of crowdfunding. And that will happen over time, uh, you know, once there's some quality deals, once there's some exits, um, and once people start, you know, learning more and more about the opportunity. Uh, Because, you know, just because it's legal today doesn't mean that, you know, my mom is going to come onto a crowdfunding site and invest in a company, you know, <laughs> unless it's my company, right? Uh, right. There, there, will be, there will have to be a bunch of news stories of, of winners and losers and everything in between for people to start going, wow, maybe, you know, instead of spending that few thousand dollars to uh, buy into a timeshare, I'm going to invest in a company. Or, you know what, instead of putting that extra thousand dollars a year into the stock market, into my... 401k or into my this, I'm going to gamble it a little bit on, on a startup. Um, and, and the thing that's incredible about that is it's sort of, if you take a step back, uh, it's, it's a win-win for everyone because even the startups that aren't successful do create jobs, do bring money to the communities that they're started in. And so if, if it becomes sort of the socially acceptable norm to feel good about investing in your community, and everyone can do it in their own small ways, then all of a sudden we're creating jobs and creating opportunities in small towns and places and all around the country. Really, it, the, the spirit of, of the rules and laws are really exciting if it's done right. 
Okay. Before we continue discussing crowdfunding, for listeners just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portion on the archive, or if you missed prior shows, you can find them on the archives, wealthdna.us. Today, our guest is Alan Gorin, the CEO and co-founder of Investin. Our topic today is cap- raising capital via crowdfunding. Okay, Alon, tell us a little bit more about Invested In. Let's say you set up a platform for somebody in Alberta. I really like that example where they're trying to glow- grow businesses in their local market. Great, great initiative. Do you help them besides running the platform in terms of attracting traffic? I mean, you know, this Google uh, search optimization stuff and, and, and getting them uh, more visible so that uh, people in Alberta will, will you know, drop to that site uh, more quickly than they would have otherwise. Are those parts of the things you do? Absolutely. So from the technology side of it, we definitely do all the search engine optimization and all that. And then from a sort of marketing angle, um, if anybody who's a client of ours will get my opinion and my advice as they they work through launching their platforms, but some people Mm -hmm. opt into getting – basically pay us to help them uh, further market and do things. So from the very beginning when they're specking out their website and figuring out how they want to do something, we, we can stop them at different various stages of the game and say, we've done that. Uh, we did that for this company and it worked out. Or we did that for this company and it didn't work out. Or you know, the thing mm-hmm. that's exciting for, for our clients is that we've launched more crowdfunding portals than really anybody uh, in the industry. And so they get to learn from the successes and the mistakes from all of the rest of our clients. Um, and so we, we help a lot with, with the launches, and we coach them into you know, how to set up the site at the beginning, how to feed the site with certain deals, how to grow the network before you even begin. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, we definitely do that sort of stuff. Okay. Now, I'm an investor. A lot of our listeners are. Uh, to find out what funding opportunities there are out there, do we need to sign up for a number of different platforms? Are there costs to do that, number one? And then secondly, uh, how do we find those uh, platforms? How do we know where these opportunities are? So usually you'll, the, the best way into a platform is when you find out about a specific deal. Um, okay. So the thing that, that's exciting is the – the people who basically evangelize these platforms most are the startups because the second I put my deal up on AngelList, for example, I told mm-hmm. everybody to go check out my profile on AngelList. I told every investor I know, go check us out on AngelList. So, so you'll start to see that being an investor. But you know, at the beginning, I think one of the best resources actually uh, that I've found, and I'm actually starting to do a little work with them, full disclosure, mm-hmm. um, is a website called crowdfundinsider.com. And in my okay. opinion, they're some of the best uh, content in crowdfunding. And they, they will talk a lot about the Kickstarter style crowdfunding, so you'll see a lot of those stuff. But they'll also talk about companies that are raising money publicly. Um, they'll talk about the websites themselves. And so once you find a few good deals, you'll probably find some sites. Obviously, there's some, some really good ones already, like Circle Up and Angel List that have good quality deals. But um, there's, there's lots and lots more launching. And most of them are free for investors. Um, they might charge a small fee, like a management fee, if you invest in a company, similar mm-hmm. to if you invest through, like, a fund. So if you give your money to a fund, they take a management fee, and they might take some kind of carry. Um, right. Uh, so they'll, the, 
sites will do similar things to that, usually much less than investing in a fund. Um, but they'll do something like that sometimes. Um, but for the most part, for an investor, it's free. They just want investors. I'm finding out more and more that some people do want to launch websites where they charge the investor a small nominal amount, similar to being a part of an angel group, where they want to be very specialized. So I talked to, actually, I shouldn't talk about the specific industry because this guy's doing something special. But um, let's say uh, we launch a site for investing in franchise opportunities. Maybe not a mm-hmm. specific franchise that's launching a corner in your neighborhood, but a whole business around, hey, this is our, this, these are our two flagship stores. We've done them, and now we want to franchise across the country. We need the capital. Um, so let's say we want to invest in that site, and that's the type of deal we love to invest in. A site like that might charge an investor you know, $100 a year or a few hundred dollars a year to get access to those opportunities because they source them out and they find really good quality exclusive opportunities for their for their base of investors. Um, uh, for now, uh, most people don't charge for crowdfunding sites beyond you know a small percentage of the funds raised or some kind of due diligence fee. But there are more and more opportunities. Um, there and, and and you know it, it really depends what you're looking for. But if you're just looking to invest in small companies, the investors usually don't have to pay anything. Okay, all right, some good tips there. Let's talk about from the entrepreneur or business preparing to go into crowdfunding. What, the, what does a business need to uh, prepare prior to it? I assume a concise business plan. What else do they need? Yeah, so it, it it depends if you're talking about like Title II or potentially Title III and things like that with the various rules and laws and paperwork you have to hop through, like doing the background checks and auditing financials. So we're, I, I won't talk about that stuff because really most of it isn't finalized yet, and it'll be it'll be it'll be across the board the same for everyone. Um, the things that I always coach people into preparing for crowdfunding is a lot of the same type of stuff you're going to have to do to run a successful business in this day and age anyway. You want to make sure that you have you know, a Facebook page for your business if, if that type of thing pertains. If you're mm-hmm. a shop that uh, a service business in a town uh, that does a lot of business, you should have a Yelp uh, you know, a Yelp profile and really good Yelp reviews there. If you sell things online, you should make sure that everything looks good, is easy to access, and, you know, people can, you know, buy your product easily online. You know, all those things that you have to do to run a successful business these days need to be done for you to crowdfund. And then there's the network effect type of stuff. If you're the founder of the company, it's going to be very important for you to have a good social presence online. If you're going to be raising money for something that's especially a consumer type of good, you're going to want to prepare by having a good video explaining your business. Uh, You're going to want to have a good deck that explains your business. Nobody's going to read through a 50-page business plan. They want to see Mm -hmm. eight slides on a PowerPoint that explain your business concisely. They want to see a one- to two-minute long video with the founder talking about their business that they're passionate about. So all... All those things will be important for crowdfunding. Um, and, and, you know, most of that has to do with just running a business in this day and age. Uh, True. What people don't sort of uh, aren't realizing with crowdfunding is that most of the people that will invest in your company will come from your network. They might not be your five best friends, but they could be, uh, they could be your your sister's good friend who happens to be an investor in your type of 
industries, you had mm-hmm. no idea they even existed. But because right. you connected with Facebook and you connected with Twitter and you put it out there, all of a sudden now your friends and family are putting it out there on your behalf as well, and the network is growing and people will start to come out of the woodwork. You might not even know that a friend of yours uh, from junior high is now a wealthy individual who loves investing in local businesses and has a good feeling about you because first off he knows you and he thinks right. you're doing a great thing. So being very good about being connected to all those social networks will help you. Uh, will help you. Great tips. Now, if a company wants to raise money using crowdfunding, does it pick a platform uh, or can it pick several? And I guess part of that, what is the cost of getting onto one of those platforms uh, to raise money? And I'm going to assume Title II where we're, we're going after you know, more significant sums uh, using accredited investors. Yeah, so with, with Title II, uh, sites will be anything from free and they take a carry to, uh, to they'll take a uh, – a commission based on how much money is raised. And some sites are even starting to charge a few hundred dollars a month to a thousand dollars a month to have your deal up on their website. Mm-hmm. I always coach people, although some sites will let you kind of share the deal on multiple sites and kind of syndicate your deal across the network, I coach people that, you know, like I said, most of the people who will invest in your company will come from your network. So you want to have one central hub to point people at, especially with Title II when it's going to be it's legal to publicly solicit. You want to give everyone the same domain name to, to go to. So if Fair you're point. raised money on Invested in Alpha, you go. And on CNBC, you say, visit our profile on investedinalpha.com. When you're getting written about in your local newspaper, you say, visit our profile on investedinalpha.com. Um, it, if you start to fragment people in different ways, you lose the network effects and the value of crowdfunding. So part of crowdfunding is, is this social game and this social sort of um, uh, system where if I tell my brother to come invest in our company and he goes there and he sees that my best friend is invested and, uh, and Ronald is invested, then all of a sudden he sees their faces there, he sees their investment, and he is now more... Uh, more apt to invest because he sees that really smart people have gotten behind us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, but if we fragmented that and he saw one investor on one site, uh, it might not be as exciting to him. And if somebody else goes to the other site and sees one investor there, it might not be as exciting. But if they see those two or three investors on one page, they all of a sudden they go, wow, he's got some traction. Smart people are getting behind him. I better get in this before I lose this opportunity. And my number one biggest thing I, I tell people at these conferences and things that I speak at are that nothing attracts a crowd more than a crowd. And, you know, um, nobody wants to be the first investor in a company. It's why VCs and angels are notorious at telling people, I love what you're doing, but I'd love to see you do this or come back to me in two weeks. They just right. don't want to be the first guy to, to take that risk. And it's why, you know, companies have historically had to give sort of extra little bonuses or things to their lead investors. Um, so, you know, it's always good to get that traction. Once you have it, if it's all in one place, it's easy to show people. And, and that's why I, I usually coach people on staying in one place. Let me ask you a couple quick more quick questions here before we wrap up. Uh, how about documentation to the SEC? You said that is fairly minor documentation that will be required uh, under Title II. 
Yeah, um, under Title II, it's the same stuff. You've been listening to Wealth uh, DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona nope, Boomer Radio. Keep going. I'm not sure Arizona that Boomer we hit that a little bit early. Go ahead. Okay, no problem. So, yeah, you, you don't really need to uh, worry about the paperwork beyond what had to be done now. But, but of course, before and during and after, you'll want to have a lawyer on board. So um, find somebody you know that you trust. To reach Stick with the them, and the bay, have them email at you know, make sure you're keeping everything above board. Okay, excellent. And again, I'll remind uh, people your contact info, www.investedin and uh, Alon at Invested In. We've covered a lot during the show and uh, really appreciate your joining us. Uh, sorry that we're running real tight on time, but look forward to uh, talking to you again in the future. Thank you, Alon. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.